Our text for this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. Would you please, as you are able, stand for the reading of God's word. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, and your goodness toward us in Jesus Christ, and for gathering us together this morning as your people, and for delivering this portion of your word to us today. Lord, we confess that we are needy creatures, that we are often distracted in our hearts, and easily led astray by the world and our desires. We pray, Lord Jesus, that by your spirit, you would be illuminating our hearts as we read and consider this portion of your word. Use it to accomplish your will in our lives and to help us grow up into Christ, who is our head, in whose name we pray, amen. So in August of 2019, uh, the media outlet that's called TLC, maybe you're familiar with it, they have a show that's called My Crazy Obsession. And in August of 2019, they ran a, a story about a man named Stanley Thornton. Now, at the time, Stanley is a, was a 31-year-old man, but was a little strange. He was obsessed with living as what he called an adult baby. Thornton described himself as an adult baby. He described this desire to get satisfaction from dressing and acting like a baby. And so Thornton would regularly sleep in a large crib. He would regularly drink bottles before bedtime, and he would even carry around a little pacifier. And when he was being interviewed, Thornton explained to the interviewer and to those watching this special, he said, listen, being an adult baby has become my way of coping with the world and my own problems. It's about feeling safe. Now, you may look at Stanley's situation, and you might think, as I think many people do, it is quite strange. You may look at Stanley's situation and think it's quite sad, honestly, or that it's shameful, or that maybe it's a sham and a scam, that, like a ruse that he's pulling over everyone's eyes. But no one, at least no one in the comments that I was able to look through in the YouTube video, no one looks at Stanley's life and thinks, that looks normal. That's how things should be. And this is because all of us instinctively know that it's inappropriate for a grown man to act like a child. We kind of understand instinctively what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Or maybe the way that we say it in our house is, that's not for you, you're a big boy now. 
Now, if this were to happen to someone in our lives, if someone in your life were to be behaving like Stanley Thornton, you would not look at it, his obsession or maybe his regression, to use that language, as something to celebrate or something to ignore or just kind of brush under the rug. You would see it as genuine cause for concern because you care for him. Strangely enough, this is the concern that the author of Hebrews is expressing in our passage this morning. You guys remember that the book of Hebrews was originally given as a sermon to a church that was outside of the city of Rome, and it was predominantly made up of Jewish Christians. And these Christians had begun to experience persecution for following Jesus, and that some of them were turning away from Jesus and going back to Judaism. And so, as we've seen along the way, this is why the author is going to great lengths to describe how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And he goes to great lengths and great detail to prove that. And that to turn away from Jesus is to turn away from their only hope of salvation. And so a beginning at the end of chapter 4, you guys remember that the author began to explore what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, the one who's been chosen by God to represent us before him chosen by God to be the one to offer sacrifices on our behalf for our sin, to offer himself in that sense. And that Jesus' priesthood is not according to the priesthood of the Old Testament. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not one of the sons of Aaron, but rather his priesthood is still legitimate. It's an eternal priesthood like that of Melchizedek. And As uh, we made our way toward that passage last week, I had a couple people come up to me and ask me, what are your thoughts about this really mysterious person, Melchizedek? But what's interesting is that just as the author is about to launch into his explanation about Melchizedek, and he'll do this again in chapter 7, he stops short of beginning to explain this aspect of Jesus' ministry. And in verse 11 and verse 12 of our passage, he says, in effect, this. I want to talk to you about this aspect of Jesus' priesthood because it's very important. But talking to you about this very important, though complex, doctrine is difficult because though you have been a Christian for quite some time, you are acting like spiritual babies right now. These Jewish Christians, spiritually speaking, were drinking from bottles every night when they should have been eating steak and potatoes. And like I said, the author is going to go on in chapter 7 to pick up about this concept of a Melchizedek. Melchizedek. But right now, he's looking at these Jewish Christians, he's looking at us, and he's saying, my focus is to help you recognize that you need to start acting your spiritual age. How many of us need to hear the same thing? How many of us have been Christians for years and yet see ourselves in somewhat of a same phenomenon, perpetual spiritual immaturity. We come to church week after week, we listen to sermons week after week, and yet we find in ourselves little growth, little change, and maybe you're tempted, like I am at times, to despair in the wake of that conviction, that we should be further along maybe than we are, and yet, This despair is not God's will for our lives. As we've already confessed, God looks at each and every one of us in Christ as children. 
and he has compassion as a father has compassion toward his son or daughter. He wants us not to stay immature, not to stay in our despair, but to grow, to mature, to change by his grace. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Hear this, Christian. God desires passionately that you and all of his children would be spiritually mature in Christ. That is his heart toward you. That is his desire for you in the same way that an earthly father longs for his children to grow up and to be well. Our heavenly father feels the same way about each and every one of us. But the question is, is how do we participate and how do we engage with God's will for our lives to grow up into Christ? And our passage this morning is going to show us that the first way that God helps us mature in Christ is by helping us identify the places where we need change and are experiencing spiritual immaturity in our lives. And what I want you to do is look here down at verse 11, and I want you to notice the chief characteristic that the author describes as an indicator of spiritual immaturity. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. The author of Hebrews is not talking about their intellect. He's not talking about their ability. He is talking about the state of their heart. And he is saying our spiritual maturity is being revealed in how we respond to God's word. In effect, what the author is doing is echoing what he's already said from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This word here that is translated dull, it doesn't mean deaf. It doesn't mean stupid. It means lazy. It means sluggish. It means inattentive. Now, if you're a parent or you've been a kid, you know what this is like. You say things to your kids, things that are good for them, things that will help them, things that you long for them to embrace, and it seems like it goes in one ear and out the other. It's as if your words or the words of your parents were never spoken but they were spoken, and they were spoken out of love. This is how the audience is responding to God's word concerning the place of Christ in their lives. They're being inattentive. They're being sluggish. They're being lazy in their reception of the truth about Christ. Maybe they're distracted. Maybe they think they've heard all of this before, right? The sermon is always the same three points. Can't we just move on to other things in our lives? Maybe they care about the voice of other people in their lives more than they care about the word of God. But whatever the reason, their spiritual immaturity is obvious because of how they're responding to God's word. Now, in contrast, those who are spiritually mature are not smarter. They are more attentive 
to God's word in their lives. They recognize, by God's grace, what the Apostle Paul says about God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, that is, mature, equipped for every good work. How are you responding to God's word right now? Are you being attentive? Are you distracted? Are you bored? These are the questions that the author of Hebrews wants us to ask of ourselves. The author of Hebrews wants us to recognize that when we come and are gathered together as God's people, or as we come to the word of God, either to hear it preached or to read it for ourselves, we don't come passively, we must come actively. As uh, Jonathan Routley once wrote in his article, The Lost Art of Attentive Sermon Listening, we're not called to be passive recipients of entertainment in our meetings at church. We are rather to be active participants in worship, and thus we should be preparing ourselves mentally and spiritually to engage with God's word. How you and I respond to God's word to us tells us a lot about the state of our hearts and about how spiritually mature we actually are. It's not just, though, how we respond to God's word in our lives. It's also, the author will say, how we respond to the trials of our life. I want you to notice here down in verse 14, he's describing uh, what he's hoping for these people. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So let's pause here for a second, and I want you to think about your week. How was it? Mine was crazy. I'm assuming yours was as well. It was probably busy. It was probably rough in a lot of different ways. It was probably overwhelming in other ways. Chances are it was all of the above. The question is, how did you respond to that? You see, when we tend to experience hardship during the week, We tend to see these things as impediments to the lives we are trying to live. We see those challenges as obstacles we need to overcome in order for us to return to the path that we were on before this very unwelcome guest, namely a trial. And yet this is not how God talks about our trials at almost any point in Scripture. (laughs) Consider an example in in James chapter 1. At the very beginning of the letter of James, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that is mature, lacking in nothing. Spiritual immaturity is marked by seeing our circumstances as a reason to grumble, as a reason to complain. As a reason to say, maybe in our hearts, but definitely not with our mouths, I know better than God about how my life is supposed to go. Spiritually mature people see circumstances in their lives not as impediments, but as precisely where God is at work in our lives, doing the real work of his grace. We see this echoed in verse 14. 
That solid food is for the mature, for the people who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, distinguishing good from evil, being able to come to those frustrating and mundane and difficult aspects of life and say, God, what in this trial are you doing to expose my needy heart? What are you doing through this trial to expose my sin? What are you doing in this trial to help me grow in ways that otherwise I would never grow? Spiritual, mature people see that their hardships are not chaos or accidents. They come compassionately from the hand of their sovereign father. And so I want you to think about those hardships from the last week. They were not an accident. I mean, they were, if you were in a car accident, that, that was an accident. But the trials themselves was not an accident. They were placed in your life by a sovereign heavenly father. It is precisely in that thing you are thinking about right now where God wants you to be trained, where he wants you to grow, where he wants to expose your need. And so as our spouses go into hospitals, as our cars break down, as our kids get sick and we lose our jobs, when we don't get into that school or that person breaks up with you or you argue again with your kid or your parents let you down again, that's where God is exposing your spiritual needs. But the last place, not just in how we respond to God's word, not just how we respond to our circumstances, the last place the author of Hebrews says we can discern our real spiritual maturity is in how we approach church. That's a, maybe a strange place to go, but I want you to look here at verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. I want you to notice here in verse 12 that the, the author of Hebrews is making a very interesting observation about his audience. He is saying, by this time, you ought to be teachers, which means that these Jewish Christians that he is writing to are not new believers. They might be perplexed believers, they might be confused believers, frustrated or fearful, but they're not new. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that in some sense, there should be an expectation that as we go along in our Christian lives, we actually do grow up and we engage in Christian community, not as immature Christians, but as mature Christians. So what, what does he mean by this? Well, the, he uses the word here to describe them as a teacher. He says, you've been Christians long enough that you should be teaching. Now, does he mean teaching in a Sunday school class, preaching on Sunday morning, it's not the same Greek word. The word that's being used here is not so much a formal teaching position like an elder or a pastor. What is being talked about here is the idea of being able to explain the gospel and God's word to other people and to help them follow Jesus. It has less to do with the ability to be a formal teacher and just simply being able, like we see in Titus 2, where older women are coming along younger women, sharing what they've learned about how to follow Jesus and how to read God's word and how to grow up as Christians. And I don't think Titus 2 is just pointing out that this should happen in women's relationships. It should be happening in men's relationships as well. And unfortunately, we have to see in this passage that the author of Hebrews is saying, 
These people aren't capable of those kinds of relationships because they're regressing in their Christian maturity. We need to recognize that what is being shown us here is a vision of church community that is engaged, not just with hearing God's word, but in our relationships with one another, seeing each other as a means by which God helps us to grow. And we need to position ourselves in places where we're passionate about our own spiritual growth so that, not that we could hoist ourselves up as a spiritually mature person, but so that we could actually be helpful, right? For those of you who have older children, you understand that there's a moment as that child is growing that you go, ooh, we made it. They can do chores. Am I the only one? And that's not a bad thing in God's family. He wants us to grow up, not so that we would always be receiving, but that we would actually be participating in what it actually means to be the family of God. So are you able, willing, wanting to help others follow Jesus? That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and that's what it means to grow up as a Christian, to move from being a person that's always receiving to being a person that can actually help others by God's grace. Now, I will confess, we probably are feeling a little sad right now. We look at these things of how we respond to God's word and how we respond to our trials and how we're engaging in Christian community, and we think to ourselves, I don't think I'm spiritually mature. I actually think I'm pretty immature. In fact, there's a, a woman in our church I had a, a chance to interact with over the last handful of years, and uh, she's, an, she's an older woman in our congregation, and she said, one of the things that she says to herself regularly, and I felt so much joy and I was seen in that moment, she goes, when are you gonna grow up? I feel that. <laughs> I think you might do as well. And this is wonderful news because it's in that sense of need and as we bring that need to the Lord, that he will not look at us with reproach. In James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives wisdom generously to all without reproach. If you want to grow in Christ, God's saying, this is great news. I got you. God is going to show us the means by which we can grow spiritually in this passage. And what's really great about this, for sake of analogy and remembering this, is that Christians grow just like kids, okay? So get that in your mind. Christians grow just like kids. They got to eat, they got to endure hardship, and they got to have loving relationships. That's how kids grow, and that's how Christians grow. And what we need to be willing to do is humbly and honestly receive the ordinary means of God's grace to us each and every day. Day. So I want you to notice here in verse 13 and in verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 here, we need to be willing to honestly and humbly receive the gospel regularly. Look in verse 13. He says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. When the author is using this phrase, the word of righteousness, that is the gospel. The word of righteousness, the message concerning righteousness is the word about Christ. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul describes the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What do we eat well as God's children to help us grow? We need to have a steady, regular diet of the gospel, of the news concerning Christ for us and to us. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, the gospel is broken down in very strange Jewish-oriented ways. But here's what I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And uh, One of the commentators uh, observes that each of these sections of this description is kind of broken up into three different couples. He says, repentance and faith, washings and laying on of hands, resurrection and eternal judgment. And each of these, in their own unique way, for the Jews that were listening to this, this sermon, they were recognizing that these aspects of their salvation were being provided to them by God through Christ. Repentance and faith speaks to our justification before God. That because of the work of Jesus, we have been made right in our relationship with God. He declares us righteous. And that that expresses itself in our lives by the work of the Spirit as we turn to Christ and away from our sin. Repentance and faith, just brass tacks gospel there. News concerning our justification. He talks about washings and laying on of hands. He's not talking so much about our baptism explicitly or the idea of laying on of hands as uh, like a ministry thing, like when, when I was ordained. What he's talking about is this idea of being washed in a ceremonial way regularly. In, in, in the Old Testament, priests would wash their hands. They'd be baptized in various ways, and it was meant to be a way of being purified so that they could continue to serve God day in and day out. This is the idea that's being, that's being shared here, and this aligns with our sanctification of our need for daily going to the Lord, of confessing our sin, of asking God to cleanse our hearts, of asking God to purify us and our intentions so that we might serve him today and tomorrow and so on and so forth. Because you and I both know we need that daily. But this is about our sanctification. Our justification has been provided. Our sanctification has been provided. And our glorification will be provided. That's why he talks about the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And you can see the past of the gospel, the present reality of the gospel, and the future hope of the gospel. And the author says, this is elementary stuff. It's the meat and potatoes. It's the eggs in the morning breakfast. It's the sandwich at lunch. It's what we need to be eating and digesting and meditating on regularly so that we might grow. But we also, as we are eating our meals, we need to receive not just the gospel, but the gospel in the midst of your trial. If you go back to verse 
13, he says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And then in verse 14, he'll say, solid foods for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Where does that happen? It happens in the midst of those trials we've already talked about. The trials that you experience is exactly where God wants you to say, how does the gospel relate to this? Not what biblical principle do I need to live so that my problems will go away. Why is the gospel relevant to my life right now? When the car breaks down, when the kids get sick, when you argue with your spouse, when you struggle to get to church on time, how is the gospel relevant now? There's a huge difference between manufacturing a program for Christian maturity and living the Christian life. It's the difference between people who go to the gym and people who work on a farm. I've never worked on a farm in my entire life, so if, I, if you have and I say things, you're like, he doesn't get it at all. You're right, I don't. But the people who go to the gym have to introduce pain into their lives in order to change. How silly is that? They have to pick up something heavy that they pay money to pick up. The guy on the farm picks up bales of hay every summer and has been doing that every single summer for his entire life. Both of these guys are strong, but the guy who's just living strength out in his life is way stronger. And if you've worked on the farm, you know that. That's the kind of maturity God wants in our lives. Not that we'd manufacture some gym for Christian spirituality, but that we just carry the gospel into the real heavy stuff that's in our lives. You will not mature exactly the same way as your brothers and sisters. And this is because God is uniquely working out your lives for you because he cares for you. The last thing the kids need is not just to eat well, not just to endure trials. They need loving relationships. If our kids don't have loving relationships, they might get bigger and they might endure trials, but they won't mature well. We know that in our kids and God knows that about us and that's why he places us in churches. And that's why he made a way for us to be reconciled to him because he knows that we need him and he knows that we need each other. That's why in verse 12, the author says, at this time you ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you. Inherent in that description of church community are needy people who need people. Is it, was it Barbara Streisand that people who need people are the luckiest people in the world? I don't think we believe that often, right? But as we embrace that, that we are needy and that we need other people in our Christian lives and that they need us and that we all need God, we all need Christ, as we embrace those relationships and receive them, God is providing a way for us to grow. And that's the gospel in this passage. It's not that God is looking at you and saying, when will you grow up? He's saying, I've given you everything you need to grow up. I've given you everything you need to grow as my child, not just in general, but today. Eat well endure trials, embrace relationships, or maybe a better way to say this, receive the gospel, receive your trials, 
receive the relationships with God and with others. As we've already confessed in our um, service this morning, in all these things, we can trust that God is at work, trusting that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, will accomplish our full maturity at the day of Christ Jesus. Until then, we need to grow. We need to be attentive to God's word. We need to endure hardship, and we need each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all of the means of grace that you have lavished upon us. Forgive us for looking upon them as ordinary and worthy of disdain. And instead, show us the good that you have for us in Christ and in our trials and in our relationships with one another as your people. We do pray that by your spirit, you would be helping us in all the ways that we need to be growing up as your children for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.